Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Well, howdy. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus. How y'all doing this morning? Uh, worship was amazing, and uh, we are diving into an exciting subject. Uh, you'll see it as soon as we start opening it up. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to be looking at 11 and 12, but 2 Samuel, be flipping to chapter 12. I'm going to read a section for us. You will see where we're going. I'm going to pray for us one more time. And then my real prayer is that God would, would break our hearts where they need to be broken and prepare us to walk where he wants us to walk. That's ambiguous, but I think you'll see where I'm going here in a second. Second Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. He says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him. Now there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he, had, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler, a rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he had done, he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Now Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus does the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you as king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your master's house and your ma- and into your arms I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall not depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this man, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I pray that as we look at this moment in the life of David, one of the, one of the darkest moments in the life of David, and Lord, as we've been tracking uh, and looking at his life, we saw a young man who, was, who had a heart for you who had a desire to fulfill your purposes, who had a desire to follow you and, and to be lock in step with what you wanted to do in the world. But at this moment, Lord, we see one of the hardest, darkest moments of David's life when he, he committed adultery and murder. 
And Lord, I pray that as we look at this moment in the life of David, it might be a sober reminder to us that a great start doesn't equal a great finish. And Lord, there are realities that we need to walk in of holiness, of accountability, so that we might walk in purity and ultimately not make the mistakes of some great men and women that have fallen. So I'll lift up this morning to you that it be a sobering reminder and a helpful reminder that we might look seriously at our lives and follow in step with your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, um, I was visiting uh, my fiance at the time, Hillary, as she was living uh, on uh, in some houses, some duplexes on Flying Ace Ranch, so kind of south of town off of Rock Prairie. She was living over there, and I was visiting her, and and I decided to go out on a run that that afternoon. And uh, I didn't really know the area all that well. And so I just start running and not knowing where I'm going. And then I take a, a ride on a road called Bird Pond, if you kind of are familiar with that area south of town. Many of you that live around College Station, like around the campus, you're like, what are these words you're saying? Okay, fr- fine. That's how I felt. I had no idea where I was. And I start running down this road, and there's no shoulder to the road. It's kind of a rustic road, trees, and it's kind of pretty. And as I'm running along, suddenly a storm blows in. And it starts pouring rain. And I'm like, and if you've been out there, it's kind of a rustic middle of nowhere. And I'm going, I don't know where to go. And so I just start running faster and further, right? I don't know. This kind of a scary moment. I'm like, I don't know. Lightning don't hit me. And so I keep running faster and further. I see some rights and lefts. I'm like, I don't want to go down those creepy locations. And so I just keep on running as it's getting darker and darker. And by the time I get all the way to the end, uh, it dead ends to some random road that I'd never seen before. Now I know it's, I don't know already, but anyway, I was dead into some random road, and as I'm out there, I'm like, what am I going to do? And I see a, like a gas station across the way, and so I run over to the gas station, and I walk in there, and I go, hey, do you know where Rock Prairie Road is? And he looks at me like I'm crazy, like soaking wet, total mess, and he goes, uh, son, where did you come from? I'm like, I don't, I, that, I don't know. There's a road back there called Bird Pond or something like that. And he goes, you ran on Bird Pond? And like, he's, he's concerned for my safety at this moment. He's like, he's like, I'd be careful on that road. And I'm like, I'm like, why? He's like, well, some of my friends have one or two too many, and they start driving crazy down that road. And I'm like, where did I come from? You know, I wasn't familiar with this whole crazy world. And, 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 he, and I'm like, well, how do I get back to Rock Prairie? And he goes, well, the best way is to actually go back the way you came retrack all those same steps, turn around, and hope that no one hits you on the way out. I'm like, where did I land? This is a crazy, weird world. And I was terrified that I'd made one bad decision after another, running headlong in the wrong direction, and I ended up in a place I never wanted to be. The reason I tell you that is for this simple reason. Little steps lead to a destination. And that little steps in that destination will lead to your destiny. Little steps, small decisions lead to a destination. And that destination through those small steps, not big decisions, little decisions will lead to your destiny. It's not one major moment that, that brings people's life off course. It's small, incremental, small decisions that lead you to a place you never want to be. And that's what we see in the life of David. We see a man that took small steps that led him to a place he never wanted to be. 
And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the sobering reality of some small steps we're taking as a culture. Some small steps we are taking, that your parents are taking, that your friends are taking, that we are taking as a culture, and the destination it's leading us to. And I'll say it this way. Our world is flooded with sexual images. Our world is flooded with this. Sexual images that bait us to the edge of disaster and condemn us when we fall. Our world is flooded with this. According to the Journal of Psychology of Christianity, 65% of men and 55% of women will commit adultery by the age of 40. Let that sink in for a moment. 65% of men and 55% of women will commit adultery by the age of 40. Well, what causes that? What are the reasons for that? That in marriage, we would commit sex outside of marriage. What is the reason for that? Well, according to an NPR um, informal meeting of 350 divorce attorneys, they've said roughly 60% reported that internet porn was a reason for that. It was part of the process. About 60% of those divorces are because of internet porn. Dr. Jill Manning, a licensed marriage and family therapist, she has a study around it. She was uh, speaking to the Senate at a Senate hearing, and she wrote specifically 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Um, as she has said it, as she has studied it, it was 56%, but 56, 60%, that's roughly the reason a lot of divorces take place. And then some other statistics. This is, this is crazy. In 2016 alone, they looked at one pornographic website, and it said this. It had 23 billion visits in a year. 23 billion. Well, what does that mean, Kevin? Well, that's 729 people a second. That's 64 million a day. Enough porn was watched in 2016 on this website that all the data would fill one 194 million USB sticks. If you put the USB sticks together, they would wrap around uh, all the way to the moon. That's pretty long. Also, about 4 million hours of porn were watched on this site in just one year. That's equal to 5,246 centuries. It's a lot of porn watching. He said, well, well is, it, is it just a pornography issue? Is that the only issue? Well, no, it's not. Pornography is one stream of it, but there's another big stream, and it's this promiscuity. Our, our desire to not wait until marriage, but to, to hook up, shack up, and, and break up. That's kind of the other way that we do it in our culture. In fact, I've heard recently from several people that even advice from, from this, a surprising source of parents saying, you can't really know if this relationship will last unless you sleep together. So you need to have sex before you get married so you know if you're compatible. There's all sorts of advice that you're probably reading and hearing along those lines. And here's a very interesting study. The National Survey for Family Growth, this is um, put on by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. It's not a Christian organization. They said this, women with 10 or more partners were the most likely to get divorced. Women with three to nine partners were less likely, but women with zero to one partners were the least likely to get divorced. Isn't that interesting? Well, the idea that if you have multiple partners, you will, you will then like kind of survey the land and understand what people are like and find out what you like and, and go that direction, that idea isn't backed up with the data. But our culture, our world, the TV shows you watch, the movies you watch say this. You've got to shack up, 
make up, break up, see what you are like together. Maybe you'll find that other person that fits your needs. Or you go online. I mean, and, and literally, you go to New York Times, go to any website, and you're bombarded with sexual imagery, all baiting us to the edge of disaster. And when we step, we fall. And if you look at the data, you look at the evidence, this, this over-sexualization of our culture isn't leading to good, good healthy marriages. It's leading to more breakup. It's leading to more heartache. It's le- leading to more pain. And I'll tell you this, I'm not, I'm not telling you this to shame us. I'm telling you this for this reason. It's the air we breathe. It's so normal. You were born into this. The, according to data, the, the most place, the most... Uh, predominant place people view pornography is, is on the phone. And you were given that phone when you were in seventh grade, and you had no idea the tool that you were given and the problems it would cause as a 13-year-old. But that is the, the space of addiction. And I tell you what, what we need is true freedom. And what we have here in the moment, the life of David, is this, a moment when he took steps, small steps, that led to a place he never wanted to be, but there's, some, there's a solution that God has, and we're going to get there. And it's a simple one-word solution, and it's this repentance. That you would turn and come back. We're going to get there in a little bit, but I want to show you how we get to this place. Not merely through the technology, but how we actually get there. James says it this way. James 1, 13 through 15, says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So the origin of temptation is never God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I had a buddy of mine who's an avid fly fisherman bring me some lures. There's a cute frog and another one that that will not... Depart. A mouse or something? What is, what is this, Zach? What did you get me? What are fish eating these days? Okay. And, and here's what James is saying. He's saying temptation comes like a lure. And, and, you, and you see the temptation out there, and you're like, oh, it's, it's fluffy and weak and maimed. And you're like, I want it. You know? And so you go after it, and you're like, Kevin, the, the mousy thing, that lure, like, that's what does it for you? That's, that's sick. That's disgusting. Like, why would you do that? Well, don't, don't worry about it. Um, Satan has one for you, and it's, it's the frog. You know, it's the cute little squishy frog. And you see that little shiny thing shimmering along the water, and you're like, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to take, and the hook is hidden. See, temptation, that's how it works. It's, it's cute on the outside, but it hides the hook. And what James says is this, you're lured, and then those desires that, that want that whatever that lure is, overcome you and you bite and it gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully conceived it brings forth death death always comes from sin it's the death of a relationship it's death of intimacy and in this story it ends in the death of a husband sin in its process lures you baits you to the edge of disaster and will always end in death well how did david get there Jump back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we watch his path. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says this. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, 
David sent Joab, his servant, with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Oh, Bathsheba, yep. And the woman was very beautiful. And David said an inquiry about the woman. The first thing that we see is this, and this really what I'm calling the cover-up is this. David was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Did you catch where he was? What's the season? The season was spring. Spring is when uh, the armies would typically go out to war. It was, it was the time when roads were safe, the rain had stopped, and so kings would go out to battle. David was given a specific call of God to, to settle the region of Israel for the nation of Israel. It was a very specific time, a specific place given to David to do. And as, he's mar- he's, as his people are marching out, David himself stays, stays back. One commentator writes this, the narrator leaves the impression that every able-bodied man in Israel goes to war. Everyone that is, except David the king himself. The first step that we see in, in the failure of us is this, the, that we are often in the wrong place at the wrong time. David's at the wrong place at the wrong time. He should have been out at war, but he's back home. And then we see, secondly, the wrong time. It says that when he's back there, it happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. It happened late one afternoon when he arose from his nap. So he's a king sitting at home, and late one afternoon, he's going, I'm just going to go for a little walk. The man should have been at war. And what is he doing? He's sleeping late. The man should have been working and going. He's sleeping late. So what we see is that he's in the wrong place and he is lazy. He is resting on his laurels. One commentator, Robert Alter, writes, David at this point in his life is taking things easy. He's worked hard. He's done the right thing. And at this point in in the life of David, Saul has passed away. David is establishing his kingship. And at this point in his life, in this kind of prime of I've, I've kind of arrived, he's saying, I'm due to some relaxation, some comfort. I'm going to stay home, let y'all fight, and I'm going to simply sleep late. And this is when it gets him. See, there's always a moment when sin has a way of creeping up on you, when you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. For some of you, it's when you're emotionally vulnerable, Right? It's when you're tired emotionally. You've been pouring yourself out. You've been doing all these hard works. You're emotionally vulnerable. Or it's, it's you feel lonely. Like you just feel like the birds being connected two by two, you know? You see two dogs running together down the street. Everyone feels like they're holding their hand. And you're like, why not me? Why not me? And you feel just emotionally vulnerable. Or like David, you feel prideful. Like this won't get me. I've got my steel wall. I'm impenetrable. But there will be a moment when you're emotionally vulnerable or energetically vulnerable. You're tired. Or for David, he's got some, maybe, he's got some pent-up energy. I'm not out working. I'm being lazy, and I'm going to go do something. I need to just go do something. 
My wife's a veterinarian, and she always says this. If a dog is having behavioral problems, go run the dog. Because a tired dog is a happy dog, right? Go run the dog. For some of you, you've got so much energy stirring up that, that temptation floods right in front of you. And because you're so wound up, you can't even resist it. And he's at the wrong place at the wrong time. And at this moment, David is vulnerable. What gets you? What's your wrong time? What's your wrong place when you're likely to fall? David's in the midst of it. And then he does a second mistake. Not only is he in the wrong place at the wrong time, secondly, he ignored the warning signs. He asked about this woman. In verse 3 through 5, it says it this way. And David sent and inquired about this woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and came to him, and he lay with her. You know what he didn't do in this moment? He ignored the warning signs. He asked, who is this woman bathing on top of the roof? Now, you may ask the question, why is she bathing on the roof? Like, that's odd. Well, not in that culture. Often it was very hot, and, and the roofs were above most sight lines. His was obviously higher than, than the houses, but most roofs were above sight lines, and so bathing up on the roof was, would not be considered scandalous in that day and age. That was a normal part of the deal. So she wasn't doing the wrong thing in saying this, but, but there was two signs that he ignored. The first th- sign that he ignored is this. Is she not someone's daughter, and is she not someone's wife. What's interesting about this is that he should have seen three things in this moment. That first, she was the daughter of one of David's best fighters. She was the daughter of one of David's best fighters. Secondly, she's the granddaughter of David's most trusted counselor. Like, this isn't a rando. Like, this is someone we know. And third, this is the wife of not just someone else, someone in your inner circle, an honored soldier. And these warning signs, these glaring warning signs should have stopped David in his tracks. But I'll tell you what, if you're like me, oftentimes you ignore the warning signs, right? So um, I'm terrible with cars, car maintenance, anything to do with cars. And uh, the other day, I'm driving my car, and there's like four lights gleaming at me. There's low tire pressure, there's not enough oil, and then something else just says, are you insane, right? And I'm like... I, for, for like a two months, I'm like, eh, well, you know, we'll take care of it later on. And I finally, I go up to fill the tires, and I don't even know how my tires were continuing to move my car forward. I was just completely ignoring them. They were so low. They were like 15 pounds. They should be at 30 pounds. I'm like, someone's got to look at this car, right? And so many of us are like that. We ignore the signs that are right in front of us that are trying to bring us to the place of repentance. We literally ignore the signs. And David, as he sees sign after sign that should have stopped him in his tracks, he completely ignores it and keeps on pushing through. See, in this moment, David's not only in the wrong place, and he ignores the warning, and he takes her into his house. In verse 5, something really interesting about Bathsheba. Verse 5 says it this way. In verse 4, So he sent messengers and took her, now, it had been, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Now, culturally, what that meant was she had just finished her menstrual cycle. So she was not pregnant before this moment. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David. 
I'm pregnant. It's the last warning sign. Hey, this is someone's daughter. This is someone else's wife. And now she's pregnant. In that moment, David had an option. What am I going to do? Am I going to confess or am I going to cover up? Am I going to fess up or I'm gonna, am I going to cover up? And here's the truth when, when we ignore this, the warning signs long enough. No matter what the signs are, we won't hear them anymore. And so David took one step of, I'm just going to stay home and be lazy. He took a next step. Oh, I'm just going to look. I'm just going to glance. And then he says, hey, what, 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 what's that girl up to? Hey, girl, bring her over. And one step led to another. And David's in a point where he's saying, oh, crud, I've got to hide this. I'm not going to expose this. I'm going to hide this. And in verses 6 through 27, you see David try to cover it up in three different ways. The first thing that he does is he sends for Uriah. He's a warrior. He's in battle. And so he's on the front line, and he brings Uriah back for a little reprieve, and he says, come on back. Hey, why don't you go visit your wife? We'll get some dinner. It'll be great. Hoping that he'll sleep with his wife and kind of cover up whose baby this is. Who's the baby daddy? We're going to cover this thing up. And he brings him back, but Uriah won't have it. He says, my men are on the battlefield. I'm not going to have the pleasure of my wife. And he sleeps on the doorstep of the king's palace. He won't even go home. And David comes out the next morning. He's like, hey, why didn't you go home, man? Come on, just go be with your wife. Come on, it'd be great. And Uriah's like, no, my men are at war. I'm going to be here. And David goes, all right, well, why don't you come on in? So the next night he tries to get him drunk. He says, come on, man. Why don't you throw a couple back? It'll be kicked back, great. Hoping he could get him drunk to sleep with his wife. This man after God's own heart? Yeah. Little steps led to a dark place. He gets him drunk. He still won't go home. He says, fine. He sends letters to Joab, his military officer. He says, what I want you to do is, is attack an army, the Ammonites, and when Uriah steps forward to attack, I want all the men to pull back. And I want to watch him die. He sends orders for Uriah to be killed. I'm going to cover this up. And so he sends the letters, but Joab realizes, man, that's not going to work. That'll look too fishy if that happens. And so what, what Joab does instead is that he sends his men on a, on a very tough attack where they weren't likely to win. It was a tough military engagement. And he sends them to this attack, and several men all lose their lives. And he sends a letter back. These men lost their lives, and Uriah the Hittite is dead. So not only did Uriah die for David's mistake, so did all these other men to cover it up. And you look at that and you're like, oh, that's just dark. How did David get to that place? Little steps lead to a destination. And the reason we don't make those big of mistakes is honestly because we don't have that much power. We don't have that much power over people's lives in which to lead them. But can you think about the mistakes you've wanted to cover up? The problems you wanted to hide? With your parents, with your friends, with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, the things that you want to hide, the links that we go to to cover up our, our history on our search engines, the things that we do to cover our own mistakes. 
See, it's one bad decision after another that led to this destiny where David made one of the biggest mistakes of his life. And God, all along, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to wake him up. Hey, here are the warning signs. Here, here's the opportunity to confess. Here, here's the opportunity to bring it into the light. And every moment, David's like, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to keep on moving. And here's why. Because when you're in sin, you're insane. When you're living in sin, you're not making sane decisions. You legitimize all sorts of things that you do. You cover up all sorts of things because when we're in the midst of sin, we're not thinking straight. And if God can't bring you to repentance through the internal crisis of conscience, he'll do it through the external intervention of exposure. If God can't bring your sin to the light through a crisis of conscience, he'll bring it through an external crisis of exposure. And that's what we see next. And here's why God does it. Here's why God does it. Here's why God exposes your sin. Because he wants the best for you. He wants healing. Remember the first time I got a, uh, a uh, splinter in my finger. I went to my wife because she's a veterinarian. And I'm like, she has the skills to pull this out. And I go, babe, hey, can you just get that out real quick? And it was kind of deep in there. And so she gets a needle and she starts digging. And I'm like this is horrible. Aren't you paid for this? Like get some Novocaine in there before you're digging around. She's like, it's just take a second. She starts digging around. So she pulls it out. I'm like, ah, and it, but it got better. I had a friend of mine who broke his femur, not finger, femur. He's playing football and it was an injury, got hit, it broke. He says he went to the doctor's office and he was, you know, kind of a little bit scared and terrified. And he laid back and the doctor said, "Okay, what we're going to do is we have to set it." And the guy's like, "Oh, perfect, just set it." You know, like a maybe like tying a bow on a present. You know, just like we'll set it. That'll be fine. He says the doctor grabbed his foot, grabbed his calf, and jumped back. (laughs) And my friend said, and I couldn't even like say words at that moment, like. There's a moment when there's so much pain, you can't even express how much you hate the moment. So he was just like, like that was what he did. He was like, And, and what he didn't say in that moment was, how could you? Because he knew the greater things are off, the more brute force it takes to reset. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to sexual sin, and in particular David's moment, It's going to require a major intervention. But luckily he has what we all need, a good friend, the best kind of friend, the kind of friend that loves you too much to leave you as you are, that speaks into his life, is Nathan. So Nathan's a prophet. He comes to him in chapter 12. And the first thing that we see that God does is he lets people speak into our lives. He lets people speak into his life. So God sent Nathan the prophet. And the greatest thing God can do for you is to have trusted friends that love you too much to leave you as you are. Proverbs 27, 6 says it this way. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy. Do you have a good friend? Do you have a good friend that knows you inside and out? that's not afraid to speak the truth and love to you, that say like, hey, I see your life is going the direct- this direction. I see you're making steps. And I'm just telling you, that's the destiny you're going to land. Do you have friends that are going to come into your life and speak the truth and love, not just give you flattery, not just cheerleader you on, but to speak the truth and love. And that's what we have in Nathan. 
He had the king's ear. He held him accountable. See, the reason most of us fall to sexual sin is this. We don't want to expose those dark corners of our lives. I remember as I was preparing this sermon, it was, it was pretty embarrassing. Um, because I'm sitting at Starbucks where I do a lot of my sermon prep. And so if you see me at Starbucks, that's what I'm doing. And I'm sitting there and I'm like typing in and I'm typing in like infidelity statistics, you know, which is always a winner. And I see two women who work at Grace come in. They're like, hey, Kevin, what are you doing? And they look at my computer screen. I'm like, I'm preparing a sermon <laughs> in a public place. And, and, and I'm looking at them and they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, David and Bathsheba, sexual sin, you know, the usual. And they're like, and it was so good because one of them said, you know what? Here's a book that I read recently that talks about that that's really, really helpful by Craig Rochelle. You ought to look at it. And I was so embarrassed. And I'll tell you what, when you deal with sexual sin, I'll tell you what, it can feel really embarrassing. About two days later, I was at another Starbucks, and another guy who really I consider a mentor walks up, and he goes, hey, so you speaking this week? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, what are you preparing? I'm like, talking about sexual sin and David and Bathsheba. And he's like, you, you, you go get him. You go get him. Kind of kills the conversation, right? <laughs> like, work on, brother, you know? Kind of, and I'm like, my God. And, and, and for so many of us, it can feel so awkward to unearth this content. But I'll tell you what, that's exactly where Satan would want you to be. To hide in shame and not bring it to the light. And Nathan loved David too much to let it sit. He moved in and said, I want to talk to you. And then he told him a story. He told him an amazing story that made David do one thing that every good friend has to do to make you look in the mirror. He says, I want to tell you a story about a man. It's a wealthy man. Man, he had, gosh, he had so much wealth. It was, it was amazing. And there's a poor man. He just had one little lamb. And like he like raised that lamb and pet that lamb. And like it used to eat at the house. It was so cute, you know. Yeah, and that rich man, you know what he did that lamb? He took it. And he killed it and fed it to someone else. And David hears this story, and he's enraged. He's like, who is this punk? I'm going to take him down. Like, who would, who would take something that wasn't theirs, something that someone loved, and just kill it for someone else's enjoyment? Who would do such a thing? And Nathan looked him square in the eye. You're the man. It's you. You have a friend that has done that for you? I'm not telling you about lambs, but they're speaking the truth in love and saying, this is who you want to be, David. A man that loves people, a man that honors people, a man that protects the innocent. But you crossed over right here. And Nathan did something beautiful. He held the mirror right in front of David's face. Take a look. See who you really are. See what you really look like. See what your actions are actually doing which is beautiful. You know, it's interesting in this moment. I, as I've been studying this and reading this, I'm, I was struggling because there was one passage in this section that just that broke me down. And it was verses 7 through 9 where it says this, where David said, Nathan, you're the man. The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. You see what God says, everything that he did? He's a giver. 
He's given and given and given. I've, I've been helping you. I've, I've saved your life. I've been giving and giving and giving. And he says this, and if that were too little, verse 8, I would have added much more. You see, the perspective that we lose in this moment is that God is ultimately a giver. At the root of everything, God is one who gives. And then it says this, and you took. You took. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You have struck down your eye the Hittite with the sword of his and taken his wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I love that because he goes, I know you didn't personally kill him, but you just set him up to die. You took. You took. I'm a giver, and you took, and you took, and you took. And I tell you what, the root of most of our sin, what we don't see in the mirror is this, that God's a giver, and sometimes we just take. He says, I want you to look at who you are, David, and who you're supposed to be. And David has the most beautiful response. Verse 13. Verse 13, he says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has Put away your sin. You shall not die. What I love about David's response is this. It was simple, unadulterated forgiveness. He didn't legitimize his mistake. He didn't say, well, you don't know the pressures of being king. You don't know that he didn't, he didn't try to sweep it under the rug. He says, I have sinned. You know, the start of your repentance is a simple admission. I'm wrong. I sinned. And yes, he sinned against other people for sure. For sure. And he sinned against God. And the reason he says I sinned against God is this, is because I'm living under God's rules, not up human rules. I'm living against his standard, not other people's standard. Because other people would do this. Other kings in the area would do this. But, but I'm living my life under God's rules, and I am ultimately failing at that level, and it impacts every other level. But, but I sinned ultimately against God, and these were the implications. I sinned. But you know the second thing that he received in this moment? Forgiveness. See that gracious statement that Nathan said? Oh, so gracious. Your sin has been wiped away. Your sin has been wiped away. You know what's so interesting about this moment? As they've been watching in culture, all of these major um, infidelity or, or sexual sins have been exposed, brought to the light. And I think in really healthy, good ways, like people have been abused, even um, in the Mavericks organization and other famous people, all these things have been exposed. Like it's, it's been hard but healthy in a good way. Very few people have simply said, I've sinned, and I'm wrong. And the ones that do have a shot of moving forward. The ones that do have a shot of moving forward. I've sinned, I'm wrong. You know why? Because God forgives much further than we can ever imagine. He holds us a standard much higher than we can ever imagine, but he covers our sin much further than we can ever imagine. He committed adultery and murder. And God says, you know what? I will forgive you. Did he let him off the hook? I mean, was God just saying like, well, hall pass because you're king? Like, what, is that what happened? No. Several thousand years later, he's going to send his own son to the cross. 
And Jesus is going to die on the cross paying for all sins, past, present, and future. And no one gets away with anything. Either we deal with our sin or Christ himself covers our sin. In this moment, you get a little window as to what's coming. God's going to fix it. God's going to cover it. All the darkness that we have done, every sin that we have done is fully forgiven in Christ. Can you believe that? So whatever sexual addiction you may be struggling with, whatever promiscuity we may have been struggling with, no matter what issue it's that we're facing, no matter what struggle we're walking into, it is fully forgiven in Christ. You're wiped clean. You're new. I love the moment when, I, when David is staying with the woman at the well and she had she'd been living a promiscuous life and he says, look, Who's your husband? Go find him. And she's like, ah, I kind of hang out too many people. I've been not married. And he's like, yeah, yeah, none, none of these men have been your husband. He's like, you thirst, but you're going to the wrong places. You come to me, and I'll satisfy you. For all of us, we come to Christ, and you're fully forgiven. It's too good to be true. You put your faith wholly and solely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You are washed clean and able to start new. God in his grace will expose your sin. And God in his mercy will wipe it clean so you can start again. That's the best news of this story. And I'll tell you what, for those of you that are feeling pretty weighed down by this topic, I'll tell you this. There is hope and there is freedom because you can walk in it in the power of Christ. So what do I go, where do you go from here? I'll give you three, three pieces to think about, okay? Three pieces to think about. First is, know where you're going wrong. Where are you likely to fall? Secondly, who can you invite in to your struggle? Who can you invite in to ask you tough questions? And third, you can't be honest with everyone, but you've got to be honest with someone. Who can you walk to this week and say, this is the dark me. I'm opening myself up. Will you help me walk in freedom? Who's your Nathan? that you can walk to this week. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you so much that you did not leave David in sin, but you exposed his sin that he might walk in freedom. And Lord, for so many of us, David has been such a model, such a, a paradigm of faith. But I'll tell you what, even the biggest people can have great falls, Lord, and we see that clearly. So, Lord, I pray that we might be people that can walk in freedom as we expose our sin and we receive the forgiveness that comes in Christ. And, Lord, I know there are some people here that are feeling really weighed down with some decisions they've made. I pray that their path may not be their destination. They can take a turn, retrace their steps back to you, Christ, and receive forgiveness and wholeness in you. We love you. I lift up these students to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, you turn to your tables and have some good discussion.